Hey everyone, Patrick Brown here. Dante Alighieri is often referred to as the supreme poet, and his divine comedy is universally recognized as one of the greatest poetic masterpieces of Western civilization. With 700 years having passed since his death in 1321, the year 2021 has been designated as Lano di Dante, the year of Dante. To help celebrate the occasion in this episode of Crown and Crozier, we'll be journeying into, well, the underworld. The Inferno is the first installment of Dante's three-part epic, and as we'll discover over the course of this episode, there are plenty of timeless themes and insights from Dante's depiction of everlasting perdition, which make for compelling, if at times difficult, meditation for the aspiring faithful citizen. In our journey through hell, we'll examine Dante's take on what it means to render unto God and Caesar the nature of authority, whether spiritual or temporal, and the consequences of its abuse, the virtues of neighborliness and patriotism, the dangers of political junkiness in excess, and above all, will peer into the depths of the boundless beatific love of God who grants us for all eternity that which we seek in this world. By now, you may be asking, what the heck type of episode is this going to be? Well, don't abandon all hope, ye tuning in here. As the Divine Comedy teaches us, every journey needs its guide. For Dante, his guide was the esteemed poet of antiquity, Virgil. For this episode, our guide will be the best companion you could possibly ask for when sojourning through Dante's representation of the lowest circles of being. Dr. Anthony Ezelin, author, thinker, social commentator, and renowned translator of the Divine Comedy. Dr. Ezelin also serves as professor and writer-in-residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts in Warner, New Hampshire. We trust you'll find wisdom and hope in what Dante's detour with the damned has to teach about popes, politicians, and patriots. Thanks again for joining us, and enjoy the show. There are two swords, and the question is which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword? And without God, democracy will not and cannot long endure. I die his majesty's good servant at God's first. Welcome everyone to Crown and Crozier. We are delighted to have our guest with us today, Dr. Anthony Ezelin. Dr. Ezelin, thank you for joining the program. Thank you, Patrick, for having me. Uh, this is very much a treat. One might say we're, we're kicking it old school today, uh, old school in the sense of the word that this is a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a class reunion, a bit, a bit of a school reunion. I had the pleasure of taking my favorite undergraduate course with Dr. Eslin uh, back at Providence College approximately 17 years ago. Holy cow, it's Ju- that long. Yes, yes. Time, time certainly flies. Uh, junior year, spring semester, seminar in Dante. What a joy, what a treat. In so many ways, that was, for me, an epitome of what an undergraduate higher education experience uh, was meant to be all about. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for doing this honor for us in the year 2021, the Anno di Dante, the 700th anniversary of the poet's death. So perhaps just to break the ice, for those of us who've read Dante already, and maybe for the folks out there who have been too intimidated to ever pick up a book 
by the great poet. Why is this year perhaps as good a year as any others, or maybe the year to read or rediscover Dante? Well, first of all, if they're intimidated, they, they really shouldn't be, because uh, the editions that I, my, my own editions, my translations of, of the three big sections of the work in separate volumes are, you know, not expensive to pick up. And I uh, wrote the notes and provided back material and front material too, with my own undergraduates in mind, right? Which at that time were undergraduates at Providence College and now are undergraduates at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts here in New Hampshire. I basically constructed the books with those people in mind. I think most people can, with ease, put themselves in the place of an undergraduate who is coming at Dante, not as an English major or literature major, but just as, as someone fairly intelligent who wants to read a great poem and get what's going on and not miss, especially not miss its connections with scripture and with uh, Catholic and Christian teaching, right? Because it is profoundly Christian poem. Now, as for uh, the uh, 700, 700th year uh, since his death in 1321, why this year should be a great year for reading Dante, really ought to be a great year for Christians to reacquaint themselves with their artistic and literary heritage, generally speaking. Sometimes I think that Christians in our age, and it's perfectly understandable, feel themselves so pressed by contemporary, urgent political concerns that if they do read, they steep themselves in theology or politics or political philosophy. Um, You know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but it doesn't form your imagination. It's not going to form the imagination of your children either. In this regard, works of art are not just better than those other things. They're absolutely essential. And unlike, unlike some works of art that you actually have to be present to experience or you need some, you need some uh, virtuoso to make it manifest to you, you need actually somebody to play that instrument. With poetry, it's there. It's there in front of you. It's a short poem. You can have it committed to memory and you have it for the rest of your life. You have it as much as anybody. You don't have to be a rich person to buy uh, a poem. You have to be a rich person to buy Rembrandt, but not a poem. <laughs> um, as I've been saying to my students for a long time now, since the very thing itself, culture, is withering away. I mean, it really behooves us as human beings first, and also, of course, as Christians. But I think human beings need a culture to thrive in. Well, we don't have one anymore. Um, well, it's time to uh, take a look at that soil and put the roots back in it. And where better than in, in the soil of, the, I think, the greatest poem ever written, The Divine Comedy. There were a couple, of, a couple of things, many things from the class that you impressed upon your students that I have walked away with and has stuck with me for life. One is that Dante wrote in the vernacular. He could have chosen to write in Latin, but he chose to write in the language of the people. And in a very important way, that means that the poem is intended for us. The, the odd thing about that is that if you were going to write about philosophy and theology, naturally you would write in Latin because you would want to communicate your thoughts to people all over Europe, right? Scholars all over Europe. It's very hard for us to imagine just what it was like at a place like the University of Paris where, where you have people from different parts of the continent just coming together and speaking 
uh, conversing in the one common language that they all had, which was Latin. That's the language of the schools. The vernacular for poetry was for love poetry. And it had been so in Italy for about 80 or 90 years and in other parts of Europe for longer than that. And it was the genius of a couple of men, but then especially Dante, to put those two things together so that for the first time we have a poem in the, the vernacular you know, in, in the Middle Ages, right? So we're not talking about ancient vernaculars, Latin and Greek, but a poem in the vernacular in the Romance language realm, which is a poem that is also profoundly philosophical and theological, as it is a love poem. The whole thing is a love poem, not just to his beloved Beatrice, but to Christ. Christ is the center uh, of the whole poem. Most people would have shaken their heads and said, there's no way that you can put those two things together. No way. Dante did it. I love that you just stole my thunder because I was going to say the second thing that I walked away for life from your class was that the Divine Comedy is a poem about love. And I remember being so struck by that, particularly as we got started in the class and in introduced to the Inferno, a poem about hell being a poem about love. Explore that a little bit more and, and, and shine some light on why this poem isn't necessarily, or it's really not about wickedness and punishment. It's about love and beauty. Yes, it's about, it's about love and beauty. By implication, it's about that true love, which is the love of God made manifest in Christ and that true beauty. It's also about human response to those things. In the case of the sinners in hell, a rejection of that. In some fashion, a decisive rejection. Now, the odd thing is that Dante says quite explicitly, says this in the purgatory, that if you look at love one way, right, love as a desire for something that is either good or is perceived as good, if you define love that way, then love is the motivating force for all of our actions, both the good and the bad. Love is... Love so defined, amore so defined, is the seedbed for every good and every evil action. To put it in a different way, the St. Augustine has a really nice, concise phrase, amor, I'm going to get my cases wrong, uh, amor meus pondus meum. What I love, right, my love is my weight, that is, it's the weight that draws me or that throws me in one direction or rather than another. Love is that kind of gravitational force that pulls me to here or pulls me to there. Uh, you want to know what kind of person uh, someone is? Answer that question. What is that weight? What is that pull? Uh, what does he love? And sinners in hell either loved something that was in itself good but loved it in a, an evil way, but still always in the guise of seeking something desirable. They gave themselves over to the love of, of wickedness. And in the upper part of hell, we've got those sinners that have, in one fashion or other, abused, usually by intemperance of one kind or another, abused a created good. Okay, so we've got, we've got those who have abused the created good of sex, that is the lecherous, the lustful. And then we go down in order from there to from there to gluttony and avarice and so on. 
But in inner hell, we've got those souls who have um, basically, uh, instead of misusing a good thing, turned themselves to, to evil. There, there we get the heretics, but also the, the frauds, uh, the, the violent of the fraudulent and the people who combine both fraud and violence, namely the, the traitors, the treacherous. But still in all, all these, all these souls were desiring things, okay? Because that's what it is to be a, a created being and not God. We desire, right? We're made to desire what is good and to desire it to the extent that it is good, not to place a lower good above a higher good and so on. These sinners in hell not only got that wrong, but they got it radically wrong and decisively wrong, and they did not repent. We're going to pay some of those sinners a visit in just a couple of minutes. Okay. But before we do our pit stops down there, our program, it's all about church, state, and faithful citizenship. So that's the lens that we're going to bring to this discussion and this journey. I would just like to get a better sense of the context in which the poem was written. Dante was an odd bird. He actually did believe since since human beings are the same everywhere, they have the same final end. That is the beatific vision of God, right? And since they all share that same end, Dante believed they all should fall under the same government on earth. So he really did believe that the will of God would have us be all under one emperor. Okay? Mm, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. And when we hear that, we think, oh, my gosh, on a worldwide tyranny. Yeah. One, the one world government. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, in the context of the Middle Ages, I mean, they didn't have they didn't have the technology that we have now. And, and Dante could never have imagined the, the modern state, which is so meddlesome, which infiltrates itself into into natural groups of human beings, such as families, private associations. Dante could never imagine anything like what we have now. Okay? By the time he was about 30 years old, he did come to favor in Italian, northern Italian and central Italian politics of the time, tend to favor the claims of the Holy Roman Emperor over the claims of the Pope when it came to exercising temporal power. I mean, the typical joke is Holy Roman Empire was not holy, it wasn't particularly Roman, and it wasn't much of an empire. Right. <laughs> um, we're mainly talking about German rulers, okay? I mean, they are all kinds of intermarriages, right? I mean, Thomas Aquinas, everybody knows he's from... He's from southern Italy, but he's a second cousin of the Emperor Frederick II, who's German, sort of. Uh, but he doesn't live in Germany. He lives down there in Cosenza in the south of Italy. You know, it's, it's all mixed up. But Dante thought that when the popes tried to exercise temporal power, or even when they asserted strong claims of authority over the emperor, that they were uh, guilty of arrogance, that they were taking up on themselves something that was not theirs. He believed that the powers were co-ordained by God, that the Pope had a kind of dignity that was greater than that of the emperor, but uh, strictly separate separate spheres. You know, if I say that, we all think, oh, Jefferson, separation of church and state. But that could not have conceived of a kind of atheistic... Mm or agnostic public square that we have now. That, that'd be inconceivable. So it's, 
almost a failure in translation to talk that way. In any case, he began he he began to favor uh, the claims of those emperors. Yeah, we got to understand that people in northern Italy, especially you know, if you're you're a businessman, you're middle class, you're engaged in some portion of international trade. Okay, whether it's uh, you know dyeing cloth in Florence and sending it out east and Right. Um, these people wanted to make money and do business for themselves, and they did not want interference from the emperor. Okay. So they tended to favor the Pope, not because, not necessarily because they, they loved the Pope, but because they didn't want political interference because they were doing all right. Uh, so they, they rather jealously guarded their city's autonomy. And so a lot of those on that side would say, well, we're for the Pope because the Pope can keep the claims of the emperor away. Now, others would be for the emperor because they were opposed to the families who were doing all the business, right? I mean, it's, it's family politics, too. And think of the mafia. I'm against that family there. Now, that family there is for the emperor. Uh, that family there is for the pope, right? We got to be for the emperor because we're against that family. Right. And and those those two, if I remember correctly, the two factions or groups there were the, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, and they're German words, both of them, okay? Um, we're not even quite sure where they came from. Ghibelline, I think, is the ultimate source of the English word goblin, uh, for what that's worth. There was probably very little. Um, Dante was a Guelph by family, and politics is basically family warfare, but he became Ghibelline in his sentiments. Um, when the Ghibellines were thrown out of Florence uh, and Dante and his party came to power, uh, that party itself split into the white Guelphs and the black Guelphs. So Dante was one of the white Guelphs. He had to, he had actually to uh, banish from Florence's territories his best friend and fellow poet, Guido Cavalcanti. He didn't want to do that, but less than two years later, it, the same thing would happen to him. He would be banished from Florence, as he believed through the connivance of Pope Boniface VIII. He would never return to Florence. So from 1302 to his death in 1321, that's 19 years, he never returned. He was under a sentence of death if he did return for a while, right? If you come back to these territories, we have the right to kill you. Well, wow. um, the Florentines had second thoughts about that. They said, well, you can come back. We won't kill you. He said, well, about all the stuff that you confiscated. Oh, you know, we've already given it away. We can't. Uh... He says, no, oh, I'm not coming back until you give me back everything you stole. So he was kind of in uh, in forced exile and then in self-enforced exile uh, for the rest of his life. You just mentioned a character who, who features prominently, I believe, in, in Dante's political thinking, but also in certain sections of the, uh, the poem itself. And that's Pope Boniface VIII. In the notes to your translation of the Inferno, you have a, a great discussion of a specific papal bull, Unam Sanctum, where the Pope made some pronouncements around the proper uh, relationship between the spiritual and the temporal authorities. Could you just give us a, a little bit of insight into that papal bull and its significance uh, for the context uh, of the poem? I actually, for the sake of my students, included the papal bull itself in its entirety in one of the appendices. This is Unum Sanctum 1302. 
1302 is the same year that Dante is thrown out of Florence. I mean, just the, the final words of Unam Sanctum give you a, an idea of its, of its reach. And of course, Dante did not accept this. Every human creature is subject to the Roman pontiff. This we declare, say, define, and pronounce to be altogether necessary to salvation. Wow, that's pretty clear. Uh, that's pretty clear, yeah. Now, of course, everything that popes say, we, we understand this as Catholics, that is open to all kinds of qualifications and reservations and interpretations, understanding, and so on. For, for Dante, I mean, this, this is just the height of what uh, he would define as the sin of simony. The narrow definition of simony is that you use church offices to get wealthy. You, you sell church offices. You want to be bishop? All right, well, let's pony up some of that family money. Then I'll, I'll appoint you bishop. Uh, Dante had a broader definition. If you use the church for power-seeking, not just wealth, but ambition, then you're guilty of that. Right? You, you don't even have to trade and sell in anything. If, if you aim to get that office because you are ambitious, because you want to exercise power, then you're guilty of this uh, mortal sin. And he puts you in hell with other Simonists in the circle of the fraudulent. Right? It's a pretty uh, extensive reach there, right? Boniface says that this is the so-called doctrine of the two swords, that in her and within her power are two swords. We are taught in the Gospels, namely the spiritual sword and the temporal sword. For when the apostles said, lo, here, that is, in the church, are two swords, the Lord did not reply to the apostles, it is too much, but it is enough. It is certain that whoever denies that the temporal sword is in the power of Peter hearkens ill to the words of the Lord, which he spake, put up thy sword into its sheath. Therefore, both are in the power of the church, namely the spiritual sword and the temporal sword. The latter is to be used for the church, former by the church, the former by the hand of the priest, the latter by the hand of princes and kings, but at the nod and sufferance of the pontiff. And I, I believe Boniface, making reference to the two swords theory, he was actually building upon teaching that had been articulated by Pope Gelasius in the late 5th century, I believe, uh, in correspondence to one of the emperors of the time. So, uh, yeah. From what I understand, Pope Boniface's statement in Unam Sanctum was a bit of a doubling down on that, that two swords theory that had first been set forth uh, centuries previously. Right. And, you know, there, there are interesting things that, uh, dearly as I love Dante, but, you know, you would think that somewhere in the poem he might mention that terrific moment in church history when St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, excommunicated Theodosius the Great. Christian emperor for a massacre of Arian heretics at Thessalonica. Ambrose excommunicated him. Ambrose says, don't bother presenting yourself for communion. When you come back, my dear son, you've done ill here. And uh, Theodosius had to, had to do penance. Okay? Then it is mentioned that. One of the great reforming popes, uh, Gregory VII Hildebrand, of the 11th century, uh, who had it out with the R Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, 
to the day of his death, had it out with him. Dante doesn't mention it at all. Okay, Saint Gregory the Seventh, he doesn't mention. Mm. He wants that empire to be independent. Okay, though of course it, it's, this is not not church state as we think of it because everything is is to be made uh, for Christ on earth to be oriented towards Christ. It's just that there's a sacral quality to the empire. That's that's where you we, we would look, right? There's a sacral quality to the empire. And that he thinks about more often than he thinks of the temporal authority of the Pope. Right. I think that's really set the stage for understanding where the poet was coming from. I will say, just as a bit of a fun fact, I love that reference to Ambrose and Theodosius. For those who care to know, uh, if you go to our website, crownencrozier.com, you'll actually see a painting of Theodosius presenting himself uh, as the penitent seeking Ambrose's absolution. By the way, we have their letters. Okay? Mm, yes. I mean, this is not something in a legend or anything like that. We have we have the letters of Ambrose and Theodosius back and forth. With, that, with the stage being set, Let's take a bit of a journey through hell, uh, visit a few churchmen and statesmen and other laymen along the way. For the benefit of, some, uh, for benefit of our listeners, a very quick snapshot of how the poem begins. Dante has lost his path. He finds himself in the wilderness. Wilderness is a bit of an allegory here for perhaps the, the sins of his past. Uh, and he, he is visited or accompanied by the ancient poet Virgil to guide him back onto the true path. And this journey is long and winding and it will take him through the depths of hell, ascending into purgatory, and then ultimately into heaven. So we can only make a few pit stops in hell today. And I want to begin in Canto 8. So Canto 8, the city of Dis. Uh, They've already explored some of the upper regions of hell, and, and now it gets serious. They're going into that inner circle, that inner portion of hell, which you talked about earlier. And the first step there, the threshold, is is the city of Dis. You referred to the city of Dis as the anti-city. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah. Folks in the Middle Ages, I think, had a much stronger sense of what it is to belong to a human community than we do. Uh, I like to illustrate this with my students by uh, commenting on the English word neighborhood, which um, did not, in Middle English, describe a geographical area. It described a virtue like brotherhood. Mm. So neighborhood meant the virtue of being a neighbor, right. a real neighbor. Okay, Your city life is tremendously important, Okay, far more than we can imagine in America or Canada now. I think that Italians, if you go to Italy, you will still find a lot of us. If you're a Florentine, you don't think first, I'm an Italian. You think first, I'm a Florentine. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I believe that that is... Uh, generally healthy, right? If you have a city, a so-called city, and people hate each other within it, or have little communication with each other, right? The city is not bound together by a common love. It's not bound together by anything. That's what the city of this is like. The first time you enter it, in uh, at the end of Cano 9, they see when they get right inside the walls are tombs. Okay. First thing you, you, you see entering the city is a cemetery. And all of the souls of various schools of heretics are thrust inside these tombs. 
when you actually meet one of the people, comes, rises up out of the tomb to talk to Dante because he was a, a Ghibelline leader who massacred the Guelphs at a, a famous battle when Dante was an infant. That, that man wants to speak to Dante because he hears that Dante has a Tuscan accent in his voice. He still cares about Florence. And yet he doesn't care about the other guy who's in the same tomb with him, who rises up to his chin to ask Dante a question, even though that other guy, the son of that other guy, the other guy is Cavalcante de Cavalcante, his son Guido, Dante's best friend and fellow poet, his son Guido married this guy, Farinata, married his daughter, right? So they're the fathers-in-law. He doesn't even speak to him. They don't speak to each other. It's not because they hated each other. It's because we're in this. What do you say to anybody? Okay. That man's trouble, his worry about the welfare of his son, is entirely, entirely irrelevant to the kids, to the, to the, to the man's own father-in-law. Entirely irrelevant. And you see things like this uh, all, all the way through hell. The traitors are stuck in ice. Some of them are completely encased in ice. Some of them... Most of them have their heads sticking out of the ice. This is at the very bottom of hell. And they say nothing to each other. The Dante asks, who are, you name some of these people around, around you here. And the guy says, this guy whose head is in my way to block my sight. Uh, and then he names him, right? So, so all eternity, that person there is that dirty, rotten think whose head is in my way. There's no true communion. How can there be? They severed their communion with God. Here and there, there's a residue of uh, natural human fellow feeling, but it's at best residual. You mentioned St. Augustine earlier and getting back to the original premise of the Infernal being a poem about love. I, I remember St. Augustine's famous definition of a nation, a, a large multitude of rational beings united by the common object of their love. That's a nation, that's a city, and we see the opposite right. in hell. Yeah, and one thing you notice, this is, this is a fascinating thing. See, uh, I, I often tell my students that after they've gone through hell, they expect purgatory to be rather the same because there are going to be punishments there. And it's not, it's a completely different realm. And one, one way you know this, one of the first three or four ways you are aware of this is that the souls who are on their way to purgatory are on their way in a completely different way from those souls that are on their way to hell. In hell, the souls that are damned gather at the shores of this misty, swamp-like river, the Acheron, and the boatman to ferry them across the Acheron, Charon the boatman, the welcome wagon of hell, hollers at them, woe to you, crooked souls. Never hope to see the skies again. I come to lead you to the other shore, into eternal darkness, fire and ice. And when the souls hear these words, they turn white and they begin to curse. And the curse they curse is universal. They curse God. They curse the world. They curse their parents, the place, the time, and the seed of their begetting and their birth. In other words, they're basically saying, we wish we had never existed. We wish that nothing had ever existed. 
It's a universal curse. They get into the boat because in a strange fashion, hell is what they have chosen. Hell is what they have desired. Exactly. Of course, I mean, it brings them no joy. Uh, and if they dally getting in the boat, Charon takes his oar and smacks him upside the head. But there's no community in that boat. But when you meet the souls going to purgatory, they're all in a boat piloted by an angel. They're all forward in the boat, and they're doing something that you never see in hell. They're singing a song together. They're doing something together that doesn't happen in hell. Yeah, it's beautiful, and, and, and it's striking, that contrast. You mentioned... Uh two characters who, who I wanted to be one of our pit stops as well, Ferranata and Cavalcante. I, again, I remember in your notes and in, in, in your, your comments on the poem, Ferranata is described as someone for whom politics is everything. Politics is, is the goal and the purpose of his life. We almost might think of him as a, as a medieval political junkie. This, this program um, is hosted by a political junkie and, and many of our <laughs> listeners are political junkie. I, I just want to pause there and just now, are there any cautions there? Is there a lesson from Farinata about the excesses of that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Farinata is an extraordinarily imposing figure. He rises up out of his tomb, naked, rises up to the waist, and begs in a rather courteous way, very formal way, uh, begs Dante, who he hears as Tuscan, to, uh, to speak with him especially about his fatherland, which he once may have punished too bitterly. And when Dante pauses a little bit, Virgil fairly shoves him towards Farinata, says, look, this is Farinata. Make sure every word you say counts. Go to him. The man is noble and formidable, a man of very great virtues, okay? none of which prevents him from being in hell, right? I mean, if we think about it, Rommel was a military genius and a man of very great virtue. What his eternal destiny is, the Lord only knows, but I wouldn't place a bet on it, being better than the everlasting bonfire. The caution there is that we've got, we've got this man who is a very great intellect, uh, tremendously powerful as a presence. After his party defeated the other party, slaughtered them, drove them out of Florence, the other leaders of his faction wanted to burn Florence to the ground. And uh, such was Farinata's authority among them, and the respect that they gave him, that he stood up and he says so. He stood up alone when everybody else wanted to burn the city to the ground. He stood up against his own people alone, and he persuaded them not to do that. But the Florentines don't remember that. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the Guelphs came back into power, they threw out, they disinterred Farinata's body, threw it out, and drove out into exile his whole family. Um, ungrateful Florentines. And so that's a kind of interesting bond between Dante and Farinata because Dante there, that the journey is supposed to be taking place in the year 1300. Dante, of course, is writing quite a bit after that, but he, he has been told that 
some bad things are in store for him, right? And of course, that will include his exile in 1302. Uh, Farinat himself says, you know, you're going to find out, you are going to find out how bitter that tastes. The, the, the caution is that you can be someone of very great power, very great virtue, believing in your cause. And it might even be that your cause is is the right one. Yeah. And still damn yourself. Because you don't really love God or your fellow men. Because you're more defined by what you hate. That's a man, it's a dreadful thing to think of. You can be a saint. I believe you can be a saint in a bad cause. I just said this to somebody yesterday. I, it's, trying to get this through people's minds is very difficult because now we define ourselves only by what kind of politics we espouse. And I'm not going to say that all kinds of politics are equal. They are not, right? I mean, some political movements, I think, are thoroughly bad. But you can damn yourself in energetically pursuing a very good political end if you lose charity. And a man like Stonewall Jackson, who was a gentleman and a fine Christian, I certainly, uh, I certainly expect that General Jackson was saved, a saintly man in a bad cause. So, you know, I mean, our tickets don't get punched according to what we happen to have supported or opposed in this life, because God searches the heart, not, not your card, your political carrying card. That's part of the reason that I, I wanted to pause on Farinata to, to, to draw all that out. Uh, for our penultimate pit stop, I, I want to get to the, some of the, the churchmen in hell. I believe, I believe this is Canto 19, Pope Nicholas III, getting back to your earlier discussion around simony and the simonists. I mean, here you have a, a former bishop of Rome depicted by the author upside down, trapped in stone with feet anointed and set on fire. Just want to ask the basic question. I mean, what do we make of the poet placing a former pope in hell? Dante's not innovating here. I think John Chrysostom said that the road to hell is paved with the skulls of bishops. That there would be a pope is not a surprise. Uh, of course, naming which one it's going to be <laughs> yes. is a little bit different. Nicholas is condemned for using the papacy as family advancement. That's what he says. I'm damned because I used the church to promote my family. And for Dante, that's the same thing as putting the bride of Christ out on the streets as a prostitute. Okay, You're a pimp and you use the church of Christ as a harlot so that you gain either money or prestige or power. And you don't have to be a pope to do that. You can be a bishop and do that. Okay. If you're a churchman at all and you employ the church for personal or familial advancement in wealth or power or fame, then, then you're a pimp. Okay. That the church should be wedded to Christ and you've tricked her up in finery and sent her on the streets. Dante has Hardly in the entire poem are there harsher words that Dante uses against any sinners than he, than he uses against these. And the reason why they're upside down 
in holes in the ground. This is fascinating. If you go to the baptismal fonts in Dante's own baptistry, you can go to it now. Uh, go to Florence. The baptistry is right in front of the cathedral. Go right in. And you'll see this enormous baptismal font. And there are holes in the, uh, in the marble that would be filled with water. And they were used for, you know, immersing the, the baby in. Instead of that, okay, we've got now holes in the ground that go, they, they must be endlessly deep because you don't have your own individual hole, right? The Pope whose feet are sticking up out of the hole will be shoved further down by the next Pope whose feet will be sticking up out of the hole. Part of the baptismal rite, as we know, is the anointing with the chrism. It's to make us like Christ, right? The anointing with oil on the head. Well, everything is upside down here, so they have the soles of their feet anointed and set on fire. And this is clearly a parody of Pentecost. Hired assassins in Dante's time were punished by being buried alive. They'd be buried head first, buried alive. So this gives Dante the chance to talk to Nicholas, not knowing who he is. It's a way of making the Pope identify himself when he really doesn't want to. And the Pope can't see Dante's face and Dante can't see the Pope's face. But then Dante, the layman, is in the position that a friar would be, hmm, yeah. hearing the last confession of a hired killer, sticking his head near to the hole while the guy gives him his last confession. So Dante, layman, is to Pope as priest is to hired assassin. Wow. Uh, unbelievable, unbelievable uh, scene. It's just just, uh, you know, so perfect. Uh, uh, whether that was fair, uh, a fair assessment of Nicholas, it may be a different question. But Nicholas, Nicholas not only says, you know, I'm Nicholas, but he mistakes Dante for Boniface VIII. And that's how we know that Boniface is going to hell, too. And then Nicholas says, you know, for Boniface, there's going to come another pope who's even worse, uh, Clement VII. So, so Dante manages to put three popes in hell, two of whom are not even dead yet. At, at the time of the, the, the journey, 1300, they're not even dead. One's not even pope. One's a pope, but not dead. And the other's not even pope. But he manages to put them both in hell. <laughs> that's, that's quite a feat, particularly when you put it that way. I, I, think, I think we're going to have time for, for one more pit stop in hell, saving the best for last or the worst for last, as it were. We've spoken a little bit about some laymen some statesmen, uh, we just spoke about some churchmen, and in the lowest circle of hell, we find some churchmen and some statesmen together. So Judas, Brutus, and Cassius, the lowest circle of hell reserved for them. Share with us your thoughts around Dante's depiction of th these three individuals occupying the lowest circle of hell. Yeah, okay, so Brutus and Cassius are there for betraying their benefactor and friend. Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, right? They're part of the assassin. They're, they're, the main, they're the brains and the main movers behind the assassin, assassination of Julius Caesar. Uh, Dante believed that Caesar was a virtuous man. He places him with the virtuous pagans in so-called limbo. Dante's limbo is the first circle of hell. There's no punishment there, but there's no hope. No punishment, no hope. Now, merely opposing Caesar politically, it doesn't get you condemned to hell because Cato, one of the main opponents of Caesar, 
who took up arms against Julius Caesar. Um, Cato is not in hell at all. We meet him at the shores of Purgatory Mountain. Hmm. Um, so it's not mere opposition to Caesar, but the, but the treachery. But Dante sees these things as coordinated in this way, right? These two, these two, Brutus and Cassius, in betraying Caesar, were also attacking uh, the empire itself. Why Dante didn't put Cato in that category, we get into a big, long talk about it. But they're betrayers of something that God had ordained. And uh, they slew the rightful head of that God-ordained thing, the empire. They slew Caesar. They are chewed endlessly in the side mouths of Satan. Satan is the parody of the Trinity. He's got three faces stuck on the one head. All right. And with his side heads and mouths that he chews feet first. So their heads are sticking out. Brutus and Cassius head first with the rear end and back sticking out is the betrayer of Christ. Uh, that is the betrayer of the church, uh, Judas Iscariot. Okay. And, um, he's not only chewed, but he also gets clawed by Satan. He just peels the skin off Judas's back continually. Not one of those ever says a single word. That includes Satan. We're at the center of hell. We're, we're, so to speak, we're in the realm of the anti-word. In the beginning was the word, well, here, in the sinkhole of the universe, where all the sewage goes and freezes, we have no words at all, except for the implicit statement of Satan who flaps his wings constantly. The implicit statement is, I arise by my own will. I arise. But all the wings do is they create this hurricane force wind that freezes the river of hell, that free, freezes the Cossetus, which is what the river of hell is called at the very bottom, it turns it to ice and locks him in place. So the very action that he performs, which is implicitly to say, I arise by my own power, is the thing that locks him in place eternally. Otherwise, nothing is said. Virgil and Dante speak together, but Satan and the three three great traitors say not one word. Wow. So, so striking and powerful, all of that imagery. For our final segment, I, I would really love to hear your thoughts about Dante's love-hate relationship with his own town. A proud Florentine spent the last almost 20 years of his life in exile. I think of of his status, his station. I think of the, the larger polis that he inhabited, a troubled, fractured, two-party system plagued in some measure by corruption. Uh, Dante loving the ideals, the principles upon which his hometown was founded, but was aghast at the direction in which things were going. Can't help but think there's there's a lot of echoes. There's a lot of parallels with 2021. Can can you just sh share some thoughts on all that on and what what the love hate relationship was for Dante, his sense of patriotism, and and whether that waned or strengthened during during his time in exile? I think his sense of the the importance of the virtue of patriotism never waned. The love hate relationship with Florence continues to the end. The final mention of Florence in the Divine Comedy is dismissive with, with contempt. I have arisen from this to that, from this to that, 
right from one thing that was not good to this, which is blessed and beautiful. And the final thing is from Florence to a people just and sane. Okay. He gives to his great, great grandfather in paradise. He gives a lot of time for the great, great granddad to express how beautiful Florence once was. That was a time in Dante's mind, an ideal time before they took too many of their neighboring villages in. So, so Dante is Dante with one world government, but he really does want every little locale to be itself. Okay. And a time when it was not wealthy. The two things that corrupted Florence that the, you think of immediately, that Dante says immediately, outsiders and money. Mm. Uh, you didn't have problem with outsiders outside, right? I mean, if you're a Veronese, then you should live in Verona. If you're, um, you know, if you're a Napolitano, you should live in Naples. You know, everybody's got their own pies, their own city to live in, uh, and wealth. And this is a kind of funny thing because those northern and north central Italian cities were part of this great wave of European international trade that's going to make Europe by far the richest continent in the world. The, the capitalism is invented by the uh, northern Italian and other northern European towns in the Middle Ages. Capitalism is invented there. And it's bringing all kinds of wealth to these places. And Dante is wary of that wealth. Um, among other things, I think there's a future podcast episode, the uh, the implications of Dante's poetry for immigration policy. Uh, but <laughs> that, that, that'll have to be a conversation for another day. My passion for Dante was first ignited uh, in that, that class with you uh, 17 years ago when it was shortly after you had finished your publication, your translation of the Divine Comedy. This conversation uh, is occurring shortly after publication of your own poetry, uh, your recent book, The Hundredfold Songs for the Lord. Perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about that work, what inspired it, and maybe if you have any special poems for the citizen, which is aspiring to be faithful and, and obedient to God and to his uh, his just ruler, if you could speak a little to that. We don't have a lot of time, but um, <laughs> The Hundredfold, and nobody should be afraid of it, okay? I know, I know nobody reads poetry anymore. It's, it's a darn shame. It's the universal human art, and it's for ordinary people. So if you're if you're scared of poetry, you can still pick up the book. I've got a long introduction that explains to ordinary people, you know, what a poem is, how these things work. Uh, I don't write free verse. I write to be understood. I write in all the traditional meters. So, you know, I don't have to worry about that either. But I, I want to help people out. I want especially that Christians should return to this heritage. I and mean, poetry is dynamite, and we should be using it. Nobody else is, you know, this, whole, this great weapon is just lying there unused. The poem is made up of a hundred poems of different kinds. And I guess you would call the pillars of the poem are 12 rather long monologues or dialogues from people who knew Christ or who are living at the time of Christ or shortly after the time of Christ. And they all, they all revolve around the person of Christ sometimes in ironic ways. But, you know, the first monologue is a monologue spoken by Mary in the early morning before Jesus has begun his ministry, after Joseph has died, and Jesus is still asleep 
and she's thinking about her son and thinking about and worrying about the life that he has in store. She, she loves him, but he is sometimes distant and she knows that she's going to lose him soon. Okay. What would it be like to be Mary in that situation? What would Mary say to herself as she looks on Jesus? And if you put yourself in that dramatic situation and you have a speaker, then you basically got the bones of a dramatic monologue. And that's what those big pillars of this poem are. For, or for instance, you're Pontius Pilate and you're not in Palestine anymore. You got kicked out. You're in Spain and, you know, you're writing, you're in controversy again, and you've got to write a letter to the, to the emperor Claudius to justify yourself. What do you write? You know, and your wife is hanging around this Christian slave. Because remember, Pontius Pilate's wife says, don't have anything to do with that just man. A dream. I saw it in a dream. Right. What do you, what do you say? Okay. Put yourself in that position, right? Or you're, or you're the two people walking on the road to Emmaus but not on that day, after that day, okay? After the ascension, and the, the two are talking and they're saying to themselves, one, why were we walking away from Jerusalem on that day? And two, how come we didn't recognize it, right? What would those two people say when they think back upon that day, they talking to each other? You know, I think that, I think that any Christian could read this, it's not, I, I want to be read by people. I, I don't want people to say, oh my gosh, I have no idea what the heck he's talking about. It's called the Hundredfold Songs for the Lord. There are the 12 big poems in it, but it's made up of 100 poems. 21 of them are hymns with the music specified. So that's basically what it is. And it was partly inspired by Dante. By Dante. Well, wonderful that the, 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 bit, the anecdote about Pontius Pilate, that certainly resonates with us here at Crown and Crozier, given our focus and i look forward to reading that and maybe getting any insight into your sense of whether he had a, a better understanding of the nature of his authority and where it came from i do believe that some some of the eastern churches uh say that he was converted converted yeah. and died a martyr's death in spain my Pontius is insolent uh to the end but with a very bad conscience that's the nature of truth what what is truth Something, certainly something I can imagine him he pondered for the rest of his life. What we encourage everyone in this year, 2021, Anno di Dante, go out, get yourself a copy of Dr. Eslin's translation of the Divine Comedy. While you're at it, get yourself a copy of the Hundredfold Songs for the Lord. And let's make this year a year of renewal and restoration for poetry. Dr. Eslin, thank you so much for this reunion. Thank you so much for this conversation today. This was a real honor. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. God bless you. Before you go, we just wanted to thank you for being part of the launch and first season of Crown and Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. We're going to be taking a break over the coming summer weeks as we get ready for the launch of season two in the fall. We hope that you've enjoyed this season. Learn more about the intriguing and vital relationship between the church and the state and seeing how it plays out in your life as a faithful citizen and missionary disciple. In order to continue to offer the Crown and Crozier podcast, we'd like to ask you to become a donor. Crown and Crozier is funded and organized through Mission of the Redeemer Ministries, which is a registered charity in Canada and the United States. Thus, your donation to Mission of the Redeemer both allows us to continue to offer the podcast to the world 
but it's also tax deductible if you live in Canada or the USA. If you go to our donation page, you'll see a special offer for donors. Mission of the Redeemer has talks given by the likes of Scott Hahn, Ralph Martin, Sherry Waddell, Father James Mallon, George Wagle, Father Mark Goring, and many others that we'd love to send you as thanks for joining our team of supporters. So please take a minute to support us and check out the offer. You can donate at missionoftheredeemer.com slash crownandcrozier or by clicking the donate button in the show notes. It only takes a minute to support this initiative, but it makes a huge difference. This first year has been incredible and we can't wait to reach an ever-growing audience who can benefit as you have. So please visit our website. That's missionoftheredeemer.com slash crownandcrozier. Again, missionoftheredeemer.com slash crownandcrozier or click on the donate button in the show notes of this podcast. Thanks so much. Have a great summer and God bless.